When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast with your host, Tom Singer. In each episode, we will explore the interesting stories of business executives, entrepreneurs, and industry leaders who are shaking things up and growing their companies. It is time to make some waves. Now here's your host, Tom Singer. Oh my gosh, you have found a new episode of Making Waves at Sea Level. Thank you so much for picking this podcast. Let's face it, when you go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast love, you have so many choices. There have been over 2.3 million podcasts that have been started. Now, a little secret, over a million and a half of them have sort of died away. However, that still leaves you with over half a million podcasts that you can pick from, and you decided to listen to this episode today, and for that, I am extremely grateful. Now, This show I started seven years ago. It was originally called Cool Things Entrepreneurs Do. And I started the show so that I could interview entrepreneurs, CEOs, business leaders, and other people. And we could talk about how do you shake things up in business? How do you make waves? And today, I hope you're ready because we're going to make some splash around the whole topic of how do you create a unified vision for your team? And this is something that business leaders want to do. However, before I get started, I have to thank one of the sponsors of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Stanton Chase International, one of the leading global executive search firms helping as a trusted advisor, helping companies build their senior leadership teams. Now, full disclosure, I work for Stanton Chase International. So if your team is looking to grow and you need that director, VP or C-level Bet the company higher. Make sure that you're talking to Stanton Chase because we will help you find the right people. All right, so today's show is awesome. Today we have Joe Cursillo. Now, Joe has a really eclectic background and he is a former trial lawyer and he also is a former CEO and he was a civil engineer. He is a mentalist. Now, that's like a performer who does like like mentalist things, like a hypnotist type stuff. I'm going to ask him a little bit about that. And he now helps companies understand how to make their people come together. He is a master communicator and he is an aficionado when it comes to bourbon. Make sure if you're ever with Joe that you get a shot of Pappy or you get a shot of Jefferson Ocean. Sounds really good to me. Hey, Joe, welcome to Making Waves at Sea Level. Good day, Tom. How are you? So good to be here today. Oh, so Look good to be here with you. Flashing. <laughs> so I just want to jump into the mentalist thing, because when I heard sure. that you actually performed as a mentalist, and I'm thinking this guy is like a high-powered attorney, former CEO, what's he doing performing as a mentalist? Tell me about that first. Sure. Um, I, I have spent, well, first of all, let me start with as a young kid, I started as a magician. And one day in the mid 90s, somebody looked at me and said, hey, Joe, you're obviously bored as a magician. You should be a mentalist. And I said, I don't even know what that means. And they said, you can do the same stuff on stage that you do with juries. 
You read people, you understand people, you know how they tick. You can make it fun. I resisted, and then all of a sudden I dove in, and uh, I've been doing that now since the mid-'90s, and I'm just honored to say that I've been recognized as one of the top mentalists in the world because it is what I love. I did it alongside the practice of law, A, to keep me sane, B, to keep me on my toes, and also because it was just a heck of a lot of fun. So how does one train to be a mentalist? I know how you train to be a trial attorney. I spent five years of my life actually working inside two Amlaw 100 law firms as the director of marketing. So I worked with a lot of of litigators and trial attorneys. So I I know how you, you work on that. How does one even become a mentalist? Is there like mentalist classes? Uh, no, actually, it's it's taking a great dose of being born with massive OCD. Nothing gets past me. I notice everything. I pay attention to details. Uh, my daughter says I have CDO because at least that way they're in alphabetical order. And it makes me much more comfortable. So when I walked into a courtroom, I could look at a bunch of jurors and I would know what their reactions to different things were going to be based on the way they reacted to my questions, based on the way they sat there. As I always say, I would walk into a courtroom, I would see a miserable judge. I'd see one juror that hated me for being there. I'd see another one that wanted to listen to everything I had to say. Another one that just wanted to take a nap. And one was looking for the door. And that was the first 60 seconds into the courtroom. So I paid very close attention to people. And that is what grew into the mentalism career, which is that human nature, um, the ability also to have been a magician. So there is some fun stuff that I do behind the scenes. And also being a trained hypnotist, it all comes together. And that's what I do. I also like to add the fact that when I am doing it, uh, it is something that just excites me because it takes people into the world of the impossible. I I love this. And I love it when I get a chance to interview people, because a lot of times I'm talking to a trial attorney or a CEO or a business leader. It's always fun to find out what they do sort of on the side and then how those things come together. So let's get into the business side of this. So you spent, you spent 35 years as a trial attorney and what, what caused you to walk away and, and retire from that and get into consulting with businesses on, on, on business issues. Uh, that That is an interesting question, and I'll be dangerously honest with you. I represented some of the worst human beings on planet Earth. I represented people charged with crimes that were literally heinous and despicable and horrible. And as I paid my last daughter's college tuition semester, my wife looked at me and said, you're closing the law firm, aren't you? And I said, yes, I'm done. And then I thought I was done using hand sanitizer until COVID came. (laughs) So you have this expertise in this idea of unified vision and helping businesses to really bring people together. So what is a unifying vision? What does that even mean? Sure. A unifying vision is a vision that people can enroll in, believe in, and want to be a part of. The way it began for me or where the phrase was born was as a trial lawyer, when I looked at 12 jurors, what I knew is the only thing that tied them together was a desire to not be in the jury box. They were an audience that didn't want to be there. They wanted to be free. They wanted to get out of there. They didn't want to make a hard decision. They didn't know what they were doing. 
They got in there. Someone had to teach them the law. Someone had to teach them their responsibilities. And someone had to get them to act the way they should act. I stepped up and took over that role and said, hey, judge, great. You be a judge. The other attorney, you be an attorney. I'm here for the jury. I want to bring them together as one. So my job, as I saw it, was to give them a sense of purpose and a feeling as if they had meaning and make them recognize how great of a sense of contribution they were making to the world. Those three keys, that sense of belonging, the sense of meaning, and the sense of contributing is what I realized brought them together and got them to do everything I asked them to do. So for me, if I can get the leadership of a company, an association, uh, or any entity to understand that their job is to give their people a sense of belonging, a sense of meaning, and a sense of community, making them feel like they're contributing to a cause that is greater than any one individual. Then there's a unifying vision that brings them together as one. And my goal is to take a company and move it from a me and you mentality to an us. And that is basically the gist of what I have created with a unifying vision and what I work towards. So you've actually written three books and one of them is called Getting to Us. What yes. is what is some of the tips that come up in this book? That What do you teach people through that? through that writing about how to get to us? Sure. Um, First of all, I want them to recognize, number one, in order for people to be united, your vision has to be big. It can't be just a small vision of we want to make money because that's not going to motivate people. The vision has to be large. So I always use as an example, you know, you've got Amazon, which created a very vertical vision. It was to be the greatest in customer service around the world and beyond. In the early days, Amazon did ads that they were looking for space on the moon. They were so big in the vision that everyone that joined Amazon knew that they could be a part of something big and it was lasting. Uh, Apple, they created a vertical vision to be the best in computing. They, They focused on one thing and people that signed in knew which direction they were going. So the visions were so big that every person that enrolled in it did it freely, voluntarily, and willingly. That moves me to the second thing. Once your vision is big, the next thing, you got to give people a choice. You have to let people choose to be a part of your vision. You cannot push them. You cannot pull them, but you can lure them by making them realize they will find their own satisfaction, their own meaning and their own purpose in your vision. Um, And by the way, I, I, if I keep going, I can tell you, I learned that as a judge, I was a juvenile judge and I used to judge juveniles on a regular basis. And my job was every six months to decide whether or not that juvenile was going to stay in lockup or the juvenile was going to go free. And I had one juvenile who I love talking about named Kenny who came into court every time and cursed me out. He didn't care that I was going to lock him up for another six months. And then one day he came in 
and yelled at me, cursed me out. And I knew that in four months he was going to be 21 and get out of juvenile lockup no matter what I did. So I let him go. I mean, I let him locked up because I knew I was going to let him go in four months. I had no choice. About six years later, Kenny showed up in my office. My secretary said, Joe, there's a guy named Kenny here. I came down the steps and there Kenny was six foot five in all his glory, looking down at 5'10", little me, little Italian guy looking up at this giant monster. And I thought I was going to die. I figured that was the end of my life. I figured he was there after all those years to kill me. But no, he reached in his pocket, showed me a photograph and said, Joe, this is my girlfriend. She's pregnant. We're getting married Saturday and I want you to be at the wedding. And I looked at him and I said, Kenny, what happened? And he looked at me and said, the last time I was in your courtroom, I yelled at you and I cursed you out. And you said, Kenny, next time I see you, either you're going to be a husband and a father or you're going to be in the penitentiary for the rest of your life. You make a choice. And I looked at him and I thought, did I say that? And I remembered that I did. And he just laughed and said, you do know you're the only person that ever gave me a choice in life. And what I realized at that moment is when you give people a choice, they will choose something. And Kenny chose the option to make him part of the human race. No, no vision gets better than that. Wow. I love, I love, love stories like that. And I love that your, what you teach is at its basic, very simple. There's two things, have a big vision and then give the people on your team a choice to follow that vision or not follow that vision. And yet so often Companies don't do that. They think small and they just tell everybody, get on the bus and the bus is going north. So why do we so often think small and just make people go one direction when, if we do it the other way, think amazing things can happen? Absolutely. And by the way, the third element that I want to point out, as you said, those are the two. And some people do do that. And they say, here's those two. But what they forget is you have to nurture the vision. You have to keep it alive. That's the part where we can't forget that once you offer something, it has to continue to be a living organism. You've got to devote yourself to wanting to do it. And I always say the way you do that is you've just got to stay present. You've got to stay engaged because you cannot get to us if you check out. So why is it that companies don't do those three things? Why is it that they, they either think small, they don't give people a choice, and if they even had a big vision, they just let it wither on the vine? Oh, I'll answer that with a funny story. As two friends of mine who were also speakers came to meet me in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania, and they asked me what we could do nearby. And I took them on a ride, and we ended up at Valley Forge, and I drove into Valley Forge with them because it was the nearest thing I could say, hey, let's go somewhere. And I watched two guys get excited over the monuments, over the cabins, over the museum. And I looked at them and I realized, wait a minute, Valley Forge, that's where I used to park when I was an engineer and a building inspector. I would park in the parking lot and do my paperwork. It's where I went after my proms to go have a picnic I had completely forgotten the history. I forgot the meaning and I forgot the purpose of Valley Forge. So in a company, they do the same thing. 
It is so commonplace. It is so every day that they completely forget that they created something with meaning and purpose. I took Valley Forge for granted until these two friends of mine got excited about it. And then I realized you have to be excited about the vision. Don't take it for granted and don't let it go stale, please, because that's what happens. Wow. I like that. So Joe, I've got more questions for you, but first I have to thank the other sponsor of this episode. So this episode is brought to you by Podfly Productions. Podfly takes the time and the headache out of creating your own podcast. Podfly sets you up with the right equipment, training, and guidance to ensure you're going to sound amazing. They do all the heavy lifting and that pesky technical work so that you can focus on creating great content, growing your audience, and interviewing really cool people who are making waves like Joe Cursillo. Hey, if you want to start a podcast, and I know that some of you do, jump over to podfly.net slash cool things and check out the offer that they have for the listeners of this show. So Joe, earlier you said that there were there were three things. You talked about uh, belonging, meaning, and contribution, and why those are so important to this whole idea of you know having that unified vision. Now, I speak and I talk a lot to companies, and I use the term community and collaboration. And when you talked about those three words, belonging, meaning, and contribution, it's sort of mirrored up to what I'm always talking about, and that is that people have to feel that part of it. They have to feel that they have that belonging. And yet so often people just go to work, go through the motions, or they belong to a trade association. And like you and I are both members of the National Speakers Association and people, you know, lots of times join and then I'll meet them a few years later and they're like, yeah, I didn't get anything out of it. I went one time. And I'm like, uh, in order to have belonging, you have to put a little more into it than attending one time and expecting magic fairy dust to blow up your butt and that you will have this sense of community. How do we build belonging? How do we build community? There, there has to be an openness. There has to be a desire. I, 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 you know, I'm gonna, I call it a wow factor. There has to be a willingness, an openness, and there has to be a true want and a sense of wonder. Because here's the thing, what you say about People say they go once and they don't feel it. Well, here's the problem. You can go to an event and sit there and watch it happen, but that doesn't mean you're a part of the event. And, you know, I, I, I laugh because I'm thinking of a client that brought me in a couple years ago. I, I walked into a C-suite and I looked and as we went to his office and then all those executives, we came around the C-suite <laughs> the last office on the left was open and there's no door between the floor of the phone banks and the company and the C-suite. And as I reached that opening, he looked at me and said, we took the door off so people would know we have an open door policy. And I looked at him and said, everything on that side is gray. Everything on this side is brightly colored the threshold matters. And I said, people don't feel like they're a part of anything because you've created what I call the visual difference. And he said to me, okay, if you were here, what would you do? And I looked at him and I said, tell me something. Who on your floor, 
Who in your company has the greatest number of ideas? I don't care about good ones. Who has the most ideas? And he looked at me and named a guy, and I said, "Um, okay, you see that empty office? Put him in there and call him your chief innovation officer. And he looked at me and said, what does that mean? I said, just tell him his job is to come up with ideas. Give him his old duties, but tell him his job is to come up with ideas and make him the chief innovation officer. And he stared at me and I said, just do it. And the funniest thing was, by doing that, what happened? Yes, he was chief innovation officer. I mean, the guy came up with crazy ideas that never went anywhere. But he was still running his unit on the floor of the company. So his people were constantly coming into the C-suite to meet him. And the threshold vanished because people knew they could comfortably walk into the front office without getting their heads bit off. They didn't feel like they were facing Tina Turner in Thunderdome. (laughs) They felt free and able to connect because the visual being a part of it happened. Well, and that ties into to this other word of what I call collaboration and you call c- contribution Absolutely. that yes. people people want to come together and, and make things. And by by promoting that person into that role, his peers all felt like they were probably part of it as well. Right. There was sort I of that, that thing that everyone because once once you it's like kind of when I give a speech, I always tell speakers never attack anyone in the audience or doing stand up comedy. Never attack a heckler because the audience feels you're attacking them. They're a team. So if you promote and 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 work with people, then everybody Absolutely. feels you're promoting and working with them. Absolutely. That is correct. And I mean, people have to know that they can be comfortable. That's it. And I mean, you know, I, it's you can take your tie off and you still might be unapproachable. The reality of it is make people feel good. Be so, human. Do you have any other advice for somebody who's listening, who wants to shake things up in their company? How can a leader build that team and be a leader? Well, you know, I, I just said the words as you were finishing. And I said, you've got to be human and you've got to learn to listen. The one thing that I always say, and I repeat this more times than I care to count. A friend of mine asked me years ago if I knew what the opposite of talking was. And I looked at him and said, listening. And he said, no, you talk with your mouth. You listen with your ears. They are two separate functions. The opposite of talking is waiting to speak. And you have to realize that every time someone's talking, you don't have to wait to speak. Listen first, then speak. And I will tell you, I use that in my trials all the time. I always said to the jury, you know, ladies and gentlemen, prosecutor's going to follow me and make an argument. And you know what the opposite of talking is? It's waiting to speak. I'll be sitting here waiting to speak, but I'll never have that chance. I'll never be able to speak. So what I'm asking you to do is be my voice in the jury room. Speak for me. And people stepped up to the challenge. If you can do that with your teams, if you can make your teams realize that you are human, they understand you, you understand them, you're listening to them, they will become your voice among the teams. God, I love that, Joe. 
So before I let you go, I do have to ask you a question. One of your books is called Don't Be a Hamster. Now, I haven't read the book, so I don't know what it's about, but I laughed when I saw that title. What is Don't Be a Hamster all about? You know, I, I love that question, okay? Uh, frankly, I love a- answering that because here's the deal. I wrote two books, Getting to Us and What's Your Freaking Point? One is on the unifying vision. The other is on communication skills because the goal was to put them together so you can create the vision and communicate it. My editor was sitting in my office one day and looked at me and said, Joe, you were a lawyer. You represented some really nasty people. Joe, you ran a bunch of lawyers. You herded cats. How did you stay sane? And I reached on the shelf and I handed him a notebook. And I said, here, here's my rules for life. This is how I stayed out of the hamster wheel. He looked at the scribbled notes and he said, Frankly, if you can cut this down to 30, we have a book. So I cut it down to 30 that I call Don't Be a Hamster, 30 Ways to Spark the Imagination of Busy People. And they are 30 tips that you should keep in mind each and every day that could change your life. For instance, one is simple. Get a hobby. Do something to disrupt your own life. Stop thinking about work. Stop focusing on what you have to do and do something fun and creative for yourself. And if you do that, it'll change a lot of how you think. So I love that. I love that advice of of get a hobby, do something to shake it up. So three years ago, another speaker, I was going to be in New York and I said, oh, let's go out and have a drink. And he goes, oh, when are you going to be here? And I told him and and it was a few days out. And he said, oh, I'm going to open mic night that night because he's a professional comic also. And he said, come with me to open mic night. Now, I love comedy. I've been going to comedy shows since I was a teenager. And my response to him was, I love comedy, but I've never been to an open mic night. I would love to watch you work on new material. And he laughed because that's not what I'm inviting you to do. And then he shut up. And I was like, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. I was at the time 52 years old. I'm like, that boat has sailed. He goes, Tom, didn't you tell me once that when you were a kid, you wanted to be like an actor in like sitcoms? Wasn't that like your childhood dream? And I said, yeah, but that ship sailed. I never I never tried it. And a little side note, Joe, the saddest part about that I never went for the acting thing. I grew up in Los Angeles, 14 miles from Hollywood. And I never, I never, I didn't know how to, my parents weren't really supportive of the idea of being an actor and I just never pursued it. And so, uh, anyway, I had this opportunity to go with him. So I, I ended up saying yes. And I went and I will tell you, I, I wasn't horrible, but I wasn't great. Um, if Jerry Seinfeld had been there, he would not have been worried about job security, but doing an open mic night for the first time in Greenwich village in New York city was scary as could be. And I walked out the other side saying, huh, that was interesting. And I told my wife, I'm going to do 100 open mic nights. And she's like, you're already on the road 100 nights a year. What are you going to go out when you're home? And I said, no, I'll do it on the road. And I ended up over the next two years, right before the pandemic shut everything down, I got to 95 open mic nights. And I did half of them in Austin where I live and half of them in cities I was traveling to speak to. I would just Google open mic night Seattle and I would take an Uber and I would go do that. That's great. And I am not going to become a professional comic, although I have done now, I've been back in it since uh, vaccination and I've done another 25. So I've done 120 open mic nights and I've been in eight shows where I've been invited to be like a paid performer. Now, when I say paid, it's like $20, but I've done that. And it's not that I'm going to make a living as a comic. I'm I'm really not that funny. I'm better than a lot of people, but I'm not at a professional level, but it's made me a better speaker and having to make this pivot to virtual it's made me more playful 
and less worried about what people think. Because after you've bombed a few times in open mic night, you start realizing that, oh, well, you don't bomb as a speaker. The audience is on your side when you're speaking. You know, your goal isn't to make them laugh. It's to give them a nugget of information. So it's actually by having a hobby that I enjoyed really changed my life for the better elsewhere. So that advice you gave, I mean, I sat up in my chair when you said it and I said, yes. Well, and I'm going to tell you, by the way, on open mic nights, I'll give you my advice for open mic nights. Always ask for a stool with a bottle of water because you see them. Comics do that. But here's what the bottle of water for. It's not because you're going to get thirsty. It's because every so often you take a swig of it. When you can swallow, you know the audience hasn't killed you yet and you're still alive and it'll remind you to keep going. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Joe, this has been so much fun to have you here on the show. I really, really appreciate that. Do you have any last words you want to share? Yeah, I'll tell you what. I appreciate everybody that listened and joined into your podcast. And anyone that's listening, if you text the word SHARK, to 66866, shark to 66866. Sign up. I will send you a PDF of the first four chapters of Getting to Us as a gift. Um, That way you can read. I believe the first four chapters have enough information in there to really help you focus and change things. So we're giving it away as a uh, gratitude to podcast listeners to let people know that we love them and we care. And we do love them and we do care here at Making Waves at Sea Level. Again, thanks for being a guest and thank you to everybody who tuned in and listened. I say it every single show. If it wasn't for the audience, why would we do this for seven years and almost 700 episodes? The reason we do it is I originally started it so I would have access to really smart people like Joe. So I could have a conversation twice a week with really smart people. It was like my own personal university. But as it turns out, thousands and thousands of people download these episodes and also learn. So we get to share my personal university with all of you twice a week. So make sure that you're tuning in. Do me that favor that all podcast hosts ask for. Go leave that review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify that says why you like the show. But more important, tell a friend. Almost everyone I meet who listens to this podcast, I say, how did you find my little show? And they always say, my boss, my mother, my brother, my friend, somebody told them about it. So if you like the show... Go tell a friend. I want to make this show like a 1970s shampoo commercial. You tell two friends, then they'll tell two friends, and so on and so on and so on. And for those of you millennials and Gen Zs, you have no idea what I just said. But that's okay because uh, the people my age and Joe's age, we love to have references in pop culture that nobody else understands. All right. Go on out there. Flex your business muscles. Make some waves. And have some fun while you're doing it. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Making Waves at Sea Level podcast. Without your listening to these in-depth conversations, there would be no show. Connect with Tom at TomSinger.com and follow him on Twitter and Instagram at TomSinger. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.